This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hi, welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have a very special guest, Jeff Dice. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Peyton. Thanks for having me. Um, if for those who do not know, Jeff Dice is the president of the Mises Institute and is also one of the hosts on one of its podcasts, Human Action. Uh, is there anything else that you want people to know uh, about you? I think that's those are the main points. Okay. All right, great. So I wanted to have you on, um, Mr. Dice, because I've seen you talk a lot about uh, how illiberal the 20th century was and uh, as you may know the name of the podcast is repeal the 20th century uh, which is a direct quote from Rothbard's strategy for the right in which he says uh, you know many critics of the right say that what we want to do is repeal the 20th century and he says in fact that is exactly what we want to do and mm -hmm. so I wanted to discuss really the 20th century as a whole uh, and why you think it's illiberal so I guess let's start with uh, the grand overview of why you think the 20th century is an illiberal century. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a tough one. We could be here all night. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you, what we have to understand is liberalism as a word and as a concept, both, I think, have been bastardized terribly. And I think the same is true for libertarianism. So we've got a couple of really loaded terms here. We'd like to think that libertarianism is the new word for liberalism. That's not entirely true, but let's just assume that it is. Uh, what we're talking about when it comes to liberalism it, it is from the 19th century, not the 20th. What Mises means in his book, Liberalism, when he's writing about the nature of the state in socialism and otherwise, when he's referring to liberalism, he's obviously, this is early in the 20th century when he's writing it, so obviously he's writing about the 19th in the rearview mirror. So that's, I think, the first mistake that so many people make is that they assume that the 20th century was somehow some triumph of liberalism. Nothing could be further from the case. I mean, across the West, the, the East is a very different matter, and, you know, pe people like me, you know, I'm not Ralph Rako, the historian. I, I think... People like me are not really equipped to speak uh, pr particularly competently about the East or the Middle East, but when it comes to the West, the West in the 20th century meant central banking, it meant income taxes, it meant social security retirement schemes, it meant great society and entitlement programs, it meant the introduction, I guess, of the income tax, if I mentioned that, it meant two horrific world wars. As far as the United States was concerned, it meant a, a terrible police action in, in Korea. We're still there 50 odd years later, spending trillions of dollars over those 50 years. It meant a quagmire in Vietnam. And then towards the end of the 20th century under Bush the first, it meant a terrible foray into Kuwait and Iraq. So uh, you know, you, no, there's nothing liberal about any of that. And so I, I certainly agree with Murray Rothbard on this idea that we, we ought to repeal those things. But I think that's a good way, as good a dividing line as any between, let's say, a garden variety or beltway libertarian and a Rothbardian is, you know, do you think the 20th century was a liberal triumph or an illiberal disaster? Right now, look, that, that's a little grandiose. That's, you know, it's not quite that dramatic. Obviously, there were very, very, very good things which happened throughout the 20th century um, in technology and otherwise. 
So we shouldn't paint with too broad a brush, but if we're trying to come up with sort of broad parameters for purposes of the conversation, I think that's a good place to start. And um, from my perspective, the 21st century has not started off with a bang particularly, uh, <laughs> you know, to put it mildly. So the, the problem is, is that I think all of us get caught up in this idea that there's got to be new, new, new. You know, there's got to be a new economics. There's got to be a new political theory. And, and of course, there is nothing new. The only thing new is technology. That's the only thing new. There really is nothing new under the sun when it comes to organizing human affairs or when it comes to human nature, a concept which our progressive friends basically reject. And when I say progressive friends, I mean of all stripes. There are libertarian progressives, left progressives, right progressives. A progressive is simply somebody who believes humans can and ought to be perfected to serve you know, a broader collective or state purpose. Um, and, and that they're not uh, fallen people. They're, you know, we can be we can effectively be transhumanist uh, if we use enough technology. And if we just get people over these stubborn old attachments they have uh, to the old ways. So, yeah, I think um, the 20th century ought to be viewed illiberally. And I think the 21st century project ought to be, well, first and foremost, viewing the 20th century correctly and then saying, what can we do or undo from that period? And, and increasingly, the more I think about it, um, you know, technology is obviously a double-edged sword. It's, it's been a huge boon to mankind. It's also been a huge uh, threat to mankind is when states get their hands on it. So yes, we ought to be using technology. We ought to be using privatization. We ought to be using um, private models of governance. But I think the 20th century, especially if you view it through Hoppe's democracy, the God that failed, it, it gives us the ability to say, you know, when you move from aristocracy to democracy, that doesn't necessarily mean things get more liberal. Democracy doesn't do away with the problem of oligarchs. It just transfers uh, from maybe a hereditary monarch or, or, or another kind of aristocrat to a democratic, bureaucratic managerial elite. And that goes beyond just government or the so-called deep state, the federal agencies. That, that, that dovetails with media and academia and popular culture and NGOs and religious denominations. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's broader than just the state. But when, when we have that, I guess that wisdom the 20th, 20th century affords us that our grandparents didn't necessarily have, that Mises didn't necessarily have when he was praising democracy is allowing for the peaceful transfer of power. Um, we, we do have that wisdom and that hindsight. So let's use it. You know, let, let's just say democracy is not the full and final form of governance. I'm not interested in government, but I am interested in governance, two very different things. And um, I, I think we can do far better in the 21st century if we get over some of our chivalrous democracy, egalitarianism, um, it, it, you know, and, and the idea that voting solves things. So uh, I guess what, what I'm saying is that we don't have the excuse of ignorance with the 20, 20th century to guide us. So we start there, and I think we begin to redefine liberalism away from its current use and towards, uh, looking in the rearview mirror, towards more of a 19th century conception of the term, which was really rigorously property and self-determination. Yeah, I I think there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that you cover a lot of good ground, but I want to hone in on a few topics at a time. The first thing I want to hone on into is going to jump back, because I've seen you multiple times actually use, um, and I think you even ran a Twitter poll in which you said, you asked people, do you think the 20th century was liberal or liberal? And I think it is a very interesting and, and good line to use to kind of to separate the wheat from the chaff that is, and in this case, the Rothbardians from the Beltway Libertarians, is their view of the 20th century. Because I think, and I think it's also a unique one that I haven't seen a lot of p other people apply. I mean, the most popular line I see to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it was, is, um, are they anti-war or not? If you're anti-war, then, you know, you, you can be convinced of these positions, position A, B, and C. If you're not, 
even if you agree with us on other things, it's predicative of really horrible positions. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little more in depth, like why you think specifically whether or not the 20th century was illiberal or liberal kind of exposes these kind of um, darker areas in, in so-called libertarians. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think economics is really just another term for society. And as a matter of fact, Mises was thought about calling human action social cooperation. <laughs> that was an alternative title for the book. So I think where libertarianism falls down is it, first of all, accepts a denuded idea of property rights. And second of all, it, it attempts to attach a whole host of left cultural precepts. In other words, when you get away from property, which is really the basis of everything, even self-ownership, what that really means is property, right? Because a human being has to stand somewhere. They have to occupy a square foot of earth. <laughs> they presumably have to have clothes on their back against the elements. They need to have some sort of calories coming into their body. This is all property. Um, and so when you start to try to relegate property to simply the realm of economics and think, well, there's a whole broader compartment to liberty, which is basically this bastardized concept of self-actualization. You know, you're not free simply because you have property. You're free because the conditions exist in society which allow you to sort of self-actualize and live who you are and be who you are and this and that. And you don't have to have all these hang-ups from some church or your parents or grandparents judging you or this broader society and, you know, you don't or, you know, we, we need to get rid of authority figures. We need to flatten things out to be uh, less hierarchical. You, you know, you're not truly free. I mean, and you can veer from libertarianism into leftism if you say you're not truly free if you have to worry about your rent or housing, if you have to worry about food, if you have to worry about paying for education or health care, if you have to work, you know, all these things make you unfree. And of course, that's, you know, basic Marx right there, you know, Marx said, imagine if, all, if we were all freed of these day-to-day uh, -day petty concerns about money, well, then we'd all go out there and be the poets and the artists and the dancers and the creative people that, that's deep within us. If we didn't have this work-a-day world, well, can you imagine how incredibly crappy most people would be at poetry or art or dance or anything? I mean, there's a reason why very few people get paid, uh, you know, to swing a golf club or, or dance in a ballet or you know, perform an orchestra. <laughs> That's the way we want it. Uh, nothing wrong with a workaday job. It's the most honorable thing on earth, um, actually. So, you know, we like to think that left-right distinctions only apply to these two parties and these conservatives and liberals, but that's not really true. There's a left and right worldview, and it's in, it's in most of us, whether it's hardwired or whether it's environmental, you know, your childhood or so, that's above my pay grade, I don't know. But I think there's an instinctive reflection in most of us. Now, there are outliers, there are exceptions to any rule, but I think there's an instinctive sort of reflexive tendency in most of us to revere tradition, uh, order, uh, society, um, antiquity, whatever it might be, and, and be a little more suspicious about radical change. And then there's, you know, the flip side where people uh, basically view the, the, the past as retrograde and racist. And we, there's an inevitable happy arc to human history and we're always progressing forward and advancing. And by the way, we're becoming better people, you know? And it's like, well, are you really better than your great grandparents? I guarantee, I doubt very much you're tougher. Um, and I doubt very much you've worked as hard. Uh, so, you know, we take a lot of the material world around us for granted, but we're standing on the shoulders of a lot of generations before us that make that, you know, Starbucks on every corner and all this beautiful I infrastructure and energy and transportation and, and buildings and travel and unbelievable food. Not, you know, all this stuff is possible because of, a, because of the capital accumulation of previous generations. And that, in your capital accumulation is just another word for profit. You know, profit is the source of savings, and savings are the source of capital investment. Capital investment is the source of all of us having this wonderful material world around us, but not all of us. I mean, there are still billions of people on Earth in the third world, for example, who don't have that.
So, you know, the project's not complete, and I'm not trying to argue it is, but what I am saying is that, um, you know, I think pe some people are wired a little more uh, egalitarian or a little more traditional. And if, if the, a program of political liberty, and I do care about political liberty, I think political and economic liberty are uh, precursors, necessary precursors for happy, prosperous people. I, I, I absolutely think political liberty is a, a worthy goal, but I'm not much interested in libertarianism per se. This idea that you know libertarianism is a thought process or a lifestyle or, or an identity, I, I don't really care about that. Um, and it can become a crutch, it can become a, a cul-de-sac where people, you know, waste a lot of time. And that certainly was true of myself, I think, in, in my 20s. And, um, you know, li it's libertarianism is interesting, but I think as, a, as an intellectual project, it's probably been taken about as far as it can be taken. I mean, the idea of an ANCAP society, uh, what that would look like, some of the per permutations of that, the theory behind that. I mean, you can go all the way back to, you know, hundreds of years ago to Lao Tzu. You can go to the Irish levelers, but you can, you know, come forward to the 20th century. You have uh, Linda and Morris Tannehill talking about private uh, insurance providing, you know, security and police, et cetera. You have people like David Friedman. You certainly have uh, Murray Rothbard, and then you have Hans Hermann Hoppe. So I think the intellectual work, the scholarly work around libertarianism in its fullest expression and anarcho-capitalism i'm not sure there's a there's all that much more to be said or done there and i think what's far more interesting today is the applications of that you know i think uh something like uber coming along and operating in a gray market in cities and then uh before regulators could catch up to it it was so popular that it was hard to ban you know that's an interesting application of of uh, ANCAP theory, you know, is it legal? Well, let's, we'll see what happens, you know. Um, so, so the applications, you know, there are interesting applications in money like Bitcoin. There are interesting applications going on with private societies, seasteading, that sort of thing. But um, I think, I, I think um, libertarianism as an identity is probably fairly unwise for most people. Yes, we're, we're, we're for political and economic liberty, but um, the, the broader program is is cultural and societal and, and civilizational. And that's that's um, pretty heavy lifting, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I think that you really do get at the core of the issue here um, and why, you know, it is such a good line of separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, the left libertarians, the beltway libertarians, the, the lawberts, whatever term you want to use for them. Um, but yeah, I think I think that does bring up a great thing when it comes to libertarianism. Is it a political ideology? Is it it something that we apply to society, or is it a lifestyle that I live? And I think I, I very much agree with you that it is not, you know, very much a lifestyle, or should be applied as a lifestyle. I'm not very interested in it as a lifestyle either. I'm interested in very different things, different things that are unrelated to libertarianism when it comes to being a lifestyle. But I do value, as you do, political liberty, economic liberty. And so I wanted to kind of bring back into talking about the specific ways in which the 20th century has destroyed these institutions, the institution of political liberty and the economic liberty. Um, we mentioned a few of them, but I would like to get your opinion on what has been most devastating in that regard that came out of the 20th century? Well, probably public schools and the, the separation of children from parents for 40 plus hours a week. Um, that was certainly the camel's nose under the tent. Uh, if you read Rothbard, you'll, you'll recall that he hates John Dewey, the educational reformer um, of the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, that this sort of pietist, uh, purit puritanical need to control everything. And, you know, that's really at the, at the heart of a lot of progressive policy. And, and you go back 100 years, 120 years ago, and this idea that there were children scattered across the whole country, especially in the West, in these small towns, and everything, just being unschooled or schooled in a one-room schoolhouse with no standards that... Uh, you know, New York or Washington, D.C. or whatever couldn't control 
um, you know, that was just anathema to the progressive pietist sensibility. And so this push for not only public schooling, but re very standardized public schooling with, with a federal overlay, which ultimately led to things like the, the de creation of the Department of Education um, and so forth, standardized testing. So that's probably the single biggest. But, you know, the second biggest has got to be probably the status corruption, if not capture of religion. Um, virtually all mainline Protestant denominations, certainly the Roman Catholic Church, uh, certainly most synagogues today, super woke, super lefty, um, you know, basically promoting uh, state idolatry, um, promoting the COVID narrative, for example, most recently. Uh, so that's that's a huge problem because, you know, hearts and minds, uh, you know, hearts and minds used to be set at the family, at the community, uh, maybe at the, maybe at the church, maybe at the school, but now um, now I think those those are captured top down a lot more than they used to be. So that's one of the great tragedies, one of the great losses of America, with all the wonderful things we got out of the 20, 20th century in terms of technology and material. I think one of the great losses was you know, Robert Putnam's bowling alone, uh, the, the loss of any sense of community and also the loss of localism and regionalism, everything from dialects to, you know, different kinds of food around the country, different experiences. Diff you know, I, I live in the U.S. South. Though. I live in Auburn, Alabama, college town. And, you know, I, I like the idea of regional differences that, you know, as, as opposed to everywhere you go has this sameness to it. And, um, so there's a lot of things we've lost with modernity. And I think the general libertarian impulse is to join with progressives and say, well, that's always good. That's always and ever good. And that the, the future, the, the present is always better than the past. And the future is always better than the present. And that's true in, in many ways, but it's also wrong in many ways. Like, you know, we can look back and say, no, the family structure was better in America, including for black folks in the 1940s than it is today. I mean, that, you know, that's just a fact, Jack. And so it, when, when we sort of say, well, I, I can't say that, or I can't even think that, because that doesn't comport with my, uh, you know, always forward worldview, well, you know, that, that's just silly. Um, we're not blank slaters. We're, again, we have centuries of received wisdom and knowledge, you know? Um, it doesn't start with Mises and being born in the 1880s. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't start with Thomas Paine. It doesn't, you know, you, you go back centuries and this, this, I, I don't, I don't think liberty means throwing that out with the bathwater at all. Um, on the contrary, I think um, learning from the sweep of human history, uh, every good libertarian, and again, that, that word libertarian should really be a verb more than a noun. Liberty is a noun. Liberty, we can define as the absence of state coercion, which basically means the absence of a state. Uh, but libertarian, to me, ought to be a, a verb. In other words, Jeff, are you a libertarian? Well, I, I don't really like that term anymore because it's been bastardized. But I would say I have libertarian views on X, um, X, you know, topic, issue, whatever. But, uh, you know, when we, I think uh, libertarianism tends to want to, dispose of all the received wisdom and to you know always look forward and and that's that's a mistake i mean markets themselves markets themselves are informed by you know all the information bound up in in seven billion humans on earth waking up every morning and acting presumably for the most part for their own betterment uh, for their own economic betterment um and embedded in that is a lot of history and tradition and culture and all kinds of things that make people do what they do. And, um, you know, that's another good distinction, I think, between two kinds of liberty, this kind of homo economicus uh, trope, which is that all, all people care about is grasping, uh, you know, under capitalism, there's just this grasping tendency amongst humans. And if you can make more money selling crack than being a heart surgeon, you'll just give up being a heart surgeon and go sell crack. You know, well, that's that's not that's not the case. Um, people have all kinds of uh, motivations, 
and that's where you know that's why we understand ordinal utility instead of cardinal. Um, so it's you know it's a it's a big world out there, and I think uh, and and a long one, and I think a lot of libertarians don't want to equip themselves with history and, and the knowledge that that provides. I think that's very true, and and I find it interesting that you would want to characterize libertarian as more of a verb than a noun because I think there is a growing sense of that in the liberty movement of not liking the term libertarian. I mean, we recently saw people calling themselves post-libertarians or people saying they reject the term libertarian in general. And I think a lot of that is because it's been very polluted and diluted. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact of, a, as we were mentioning, you know, the beltways, the left libertarians, the lawberts, again, whatever term you wanted to want to use, um, view the 20th century as a liberal triumph. Because we did have good things, as you mentioned, you know, technology, um, there was a satisfaction of a lot of material needs for many, many people. But I think at the core, what exposes the difference is that, you know, that's not all of it. That's just two pieces of the puzzle. There's a lot more going on there. And I think I want to dive a little deeper into those pieces of the puzzle, um, because you mentioned a lot about you know, when I asked about what do you think were the biggest problems with the 20th century, it came down to family and community life, uh, which have been hollowed out completely. Um, the, the, yeah. kind of, the kind of creating of a, a single monolithic culture, though I think there are still lots of holdouts, um, and I think there is somewhat of a rejection of this, we are a monolithic culture. And I wanted to ask you... Um, where you see uh, this going? Where, where, do you do you think that there is these holdouts are going to be a big pushback and pushback enough that we see a kind of return to this family and community life, or do you think mm. we're going to we're going to continue down the path of continually subverting and taking out community life until there's nothing left? Wow. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, this is mostly a question about materialism because I don't think any huge change happens to, you know, any diversion of our current path short of some real economic pain. Mm -hmm. um, people will put up with a lot if, you know, everything works reasonably well and, you know, they're things are pretty good at work, things are pretty good with their paycheck, things are pretty good with inflation. You, you know, people will put up with a lot. Um, but you take that away, and all of these social fissures which exist in America get very nasty very quick, I think. Um, and so th there's kind of two ways to imagine it. One is uh, what I would consider a happier, more decentralized, uh, federalist, at least soft secession, some kind of maybe not outright breakup of the United States into brand new political entities, but a real uh, resurgence of federalism to the point of aggressive regionalism, where you know we sort of start self-segregating, which is already which is already happening before COVID, but accelerated mightily during COVID. So some kind of scenario where um, you know there's no bloodshed, and we have enough time period of maybe years or even decades to work out all these terribly thorny questions like federal land and federal debt and federal entitlements and nukes, you know, really tough, tough questions. Um, a negotiation process of sorts. You know, the, the other scenario is some kind of really nasty economic uh, downturn, which I think results in going the other way, which is a, a what you know, instead of a federalization of things, in America, we, we succumb to an internationalization under the auspices of something, somebody like the IMF, where we say, okay, you know, now there's a currency crisis to end all currency crisis. It's the U.S. dollar, the world's reserve currency, is all of a sudden losing its value, and we need to step in, just like the Fed stepped in during the crisis of 07, 
you know, now we need the international Fed in effect, the, 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 the central bank to central banks the, under the form of the IMF to step in and, you know, create some sort of worldwide currency, some sort of maybe worldwide bond debt. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of people have, this isn't my thinking or anything I came up with. A lot of people way smarter and more informed than me have, have talked about this. Jim Rickards uh, has talked about this in his Currency Wars book with the, about the IMF and such. Uh, Pat Buchanan, of all people, 10 or 20 years ago said, you know, we're going to go one of two ways. Either we're going to have a breakup or we're going to have, you know, truly more of a, of a global system. And I think the, um, uh, you know, the Great Reset uh, and the World Economic Forum, there, there are a lot of people trying very hard to make sure it's that second scenario. And it's not a conspiracy. They're quite open about it. They discuss it very openly, and they've become a lot more open about it since Brexit and Trump and COVID. You know, uh, now they're just willing to discuss it. Uh, the Klaus Schwabs of the world. Go listen to Bob Murphy's series on that. You know, he's just using their own words, their own documents, their own statements, public statements. So I don't know which way it goes. Um, you know, I certainly hope it's bloodless. I, I think it's not in anybody's interest to have any kind of civil conflict in America. And frankly, we're, we're not very tough people. I mean, we're kind of fat and addled. Uh, so wars are generally fought by young, you know, hard men uh, that, you know, there's some of those in Ukraine and Russia. There's some of those in China, not too many of those in America. Um, so, you know, I, I just hope we can be sensible about this. There's a, a law professor at George Mason named Frank Buckley, who wrote a book about, uh, called, I think it's, I believe it's titled America Divided. You can look it up. It's on Amazon just a year or two ago. And he, he talks about the, the kind of negotiations that could be possible. I mean, this doesn't have to be uh, set in stone that there's some sort of civil war. And um, obviously we don't have neat, any sort of neat geographic divides in America. Um, we had the, you know, the North-South, the Union and the Confederacy during the Civil War era. We don't have that now. We have very blue cities within red states. We have very red areas within blue states. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, there probably have to be at least some amount of physical or geographic um, shifts where you know people are leaving states and going to states that comport better with their worldview and and there's no reason why 330 million people have to share you know one view on abortion or one view on gun control or one view on prayer in schools you know a lot of those social issues i think could really uh be defanged by just simply allowing a greater degree of federalism taking those issues away from this ridiculous dopey supreme court of ours um, you know, that, that, that in and of itself could really be a release valve for a lot of the pressure in this country. Um, and so that's, that's how I'd like to see it going. Um, but, you know, I, I remain optimistic. I have a couple of kids, teenagers. It's my, you know, I need to be optimistic for their sake. And, um, you know, day to day, we still have a tremendous degree of freedom. We still have tremendous platforms to speak our mind. They're, I'm really surprised, frankly, they haven't had more crackdowns on the internet in the West. Um, and, uh, you know, while we have those freedoms and uh, we ought to be using them and availing ourselves of them. So, you know, we don't, you, you know, you and I, we don't have the right to pessimism because we haven't earned it. We haven't had gone through material hardships. We haven't gone through wars or depressions or times of deprivation. So, you know, we don't have the right to be Debbie Downer. Yeah, I, I respond with that a, a lot because I think I think we very much take for granted what we do have, the good things that ultimately did come out of the 20th century, and I think there is a lot of like shucking of responsibility, a lot of um, giving it away and, and saying it's not on us, and I think that you're correct that, that those are the two scenarios that are before us and where we will probably go. Um, but since we're on kind of like the 20th, first century rather than the 20th century, I want to talk about a bit about the 21st century and the way you've seen it going 
and if you think it's emulating a lot of the beginning of the 20th century or if it's kind of behaving differently um, and whether or not you think we've gotten more liberal or more illiberal yeah tough question um I think Ryan McMakin pointed this out. You know, the scenario we're in right now with Putin in Ukraine is far more like 1914 than it is like 1938. We got to drop it with these Hitler comparisons. You know, Ukraine is not um, Germany rolling across into Russia. You know, it's not Germany rolling into France or into Austria. It's a very different thing. Uh, it, it's really a regional skirmish. And let's hope that we don't, through a blunder, through a series of errors, turn it into some kind of European-wide or Eastern European-wide conflagration. You know, nobody wants that. Nobody wants nuclear war. Um, so that's, I think, the, the more accurate analogy to where we are today. Are we more liberal or less liberal than, let's say, we were at the turn of the century 22 years ago? Um, liberal in, in our sense of that? Uh, Boy, it's hard to say. I mean, the internet revolution, really the first websites didn't get robust until like the late 90s. Um, and, and 2000 through 2010 was really when the blogosphere um, blossomed. And this is, you're too young for all this stuff. But, um, you know, so in that sense, I think we're freer. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great stuff you can go find out there on on, uh, you know, and it's been a great leveler. When the New York Times has an editorial, you know, there's a million comments online. I mean, that never used to be the case. Um, you just had to sit there and take it. Uh, so I, I think in the communication sense, we're freer. There's certainly a, a greater freedom for potential and money, uh, a greater potential for uh, f freedom in digital printing, 3D printing, firearms, etc. But the same impulses are still there. You know, the, the thing about the political class is they never go away, no matter how horrifically wrong they were. Um, so we still have neoconservatives today. They didn't, uh, you know, put their tail between their legs after Iraq and go away in shame. No, they, they came back stronger than ever. And now they're mostly Democrats, like Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, so, it, you know, ideologically, we're probably worse off um, than we were in 2000. I mean, W, the, the W, uh, Cheney, Ashcroft, you know, John U. Wolfowitz doctrine of regime change and preemptive strikes and uh, renditions, uh, you know, detaining people in indefinite detention without habeas corpus by calling people uh, war criminals rather than regular criminals. You know, all that was a really dark time, a really fascist time for America. The Patriot Act, creation of TSA. Um, so that was, you know, uh, W was was bad. Uh, that was a bad time for America. So we're, we're probably, you know, less liberal as a result of that. And then Obama was, uh, you know, really ushered in more of the social craziness. The T in LGBT really came to the fore under Obama, um, and that's led to a lot of really hateful, and I'm talking about on the on the T side, uh, a lot of real hatefulness and a, a desire to inflict pain on people and cancel people and ruin people who won't go along with the new delusion. Um, so in that sense, we're probably less free in our public statements and pronouncements and such. Cancel culture's new. Um, and of course, debt and deficits have gotten worse. I mean, when in, in 2001, when W entered office, U.S. federal debt was about $5 trillion. $5 trillion, you know, now it's 30. I mean, you, it, as recently as 20 years ago, when, you know, when W is entering office, you, know, you still could have dealt with debt and entitlements in a mathematical sense. You know, it still would have been possible. I'm not saying there was the political will to do the things you would have to do, like cut spending or raise taxes or whatever, but 
it, it was mathematically possible when you just looked at the demographics of the United States. Now, fast forward 22 years later, and you've had you know these two, these two wars and the, the crash of 07, 08, the Fed's balance sheet and, and all this you know hyperdrive spending. So now we've got 30 trillion in debt, and it's no longer mathematically possible, especially when you consider that the the, the number of people in America over 65 will double in the next 20, 30 years. So that means the entitlement consumers will double even as the entitlement payers are, are ever shrinking. So, you know, all of that has gotten way worse since, um, since 2000. And frankly, I mean, I, I would say so far, um, <laughs> I mean, bizarrely speaking, um, Trump and Biden are certainly an improvement on W, uh, both rhetorically and, and, and I think in what they really believe. So, you know, we, we press on and um, it's too late. It's too late to worry about that. That the, the, you know, the die is cast with regard to the federal government and federal entitlements it's, it's in the dollar. It's, it's too late to worry about that. What we, ought, what we gotta be worrying about is the things which are in our control. And those are certainly closer to home. Mm-hmm. So I think how I want to kind of wrap up is to return to the 20th century, talking about that. And let's first talk about, I guess, identify a point at which the 20th century turned illiberal. We talked about what were the most devastating things, but I think what turned the century illiberal uh it is a different thing, at least in my view. And, um, and I think really where that started was in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve and the income tax. I think you saw a little bit of it with Teddy Roosevelt's presidency and the, the ushering in of a more progressive ideology, both in the GOP and the Democratic Party. Um, but I wanted to see if that was your assessment as well and if at any point um, there was the potential to 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 t- turn the tide, or was it too the century as a whole was too far gone? Oh boy, that's a great question. I think there was a chance to turn the tide. It was called Silent Cal. <laughs> the great Calvin Coolidge, a guy who actually literally reduced. Uh, nominal federal spending while in office, not adjusted, actual nominal federal spending. Uh, so Silent Cow is a really interesting character and a really interesting cat. And I recommend his biography by Amity Schles, the historian who runs the Coolidge Foundation. She's great. But yes, I certainly think the 1910s were the beginning of the end. Um, obviously, income taxes and central banks. I mean, other countries like England had central banks prior to that. But um, in the United States, um, World War One was really it because that's when you know a comedy of errors, Franz Ferdinand, and then um, you have an income tax, you have a central bank, and all of these things, of course, had their roots, as you mentioned, really back in the 1880s. Even I mean, the roots of progressivism—you can't just say that all of a sudden, 1910, people became progressive in their thinking. No, they were—they you know—they were influenced by previous decades, of course. But when it really came to fruition. I think the 1910s are probably the 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 best uh, mark in the sand, maybe the high water mark in many ways um, for civilization. In that, I would say pre World War One Vienna was probably the social, cultural, and intellectual high point, maybe in human history. Um, the, the kind of minds that had been gathered there, and and not just liberty minds. I mean, you know. Um, uh, you know, communism, socialism, uh, variants on everything, on science, technology, all coalesced around Vienna, music, on, uh, you know. Um, so if you're looking for a point in time where the wave reached its high point and then receded, <laughs> you might say some of those coffee houses in Vienna in 1910 or thereabouts. But um, so obviously World War One is just a terrible tragedy, a comedy of errors that started and then it becomes... Um, it moves across Europe. Then you get Versailles, which not in full, let's be fair, in part Versailles creates a lot of angst and animosity in Germany, helps give rise to Hitler, 
um, Hitler does what Hitler does, and then we make some disastrous mistakes towards the end of that war in our relationship with Stalin. Um, you know, and we basically allowed the Soviet Union to become the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, you go on from there, uh, all of Eastern Europe crushed, including beautiful places like Poland and Hungary. Um, you know, what would things look like if, you, if, if you'd had a unified Europe for the entirety of the 20th, 20th century? Wow, you know, um, hard to imagine. But so, so yeah, I think, um, I think uh, World War One and that, the 1910s were really the, 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 the tipping point. And then there were opportunities to get back, perhaps with Coolidge, perhaps a last gasp tipping point uh, with Taft versus Eisenhower. Um, now Eisenhower didn't turn out all that bad, but obviously Taft, I think Taft died maybe a, within a year of the actual election. So it's hard to say what it would have meant if Taft had, had somehow won. But once the old right in the, in the sort of the form of Taft uh, was extinguished, then that led to us into the 50s and the Cold War, uh, conservatism went wildly off the rails at that point, stopped conserving anything and became strictly a Cold War party. Um, and, you know, the 50s, Ike tried in many ways um, after Truman, but he, he never really got a hold of the beast. And then the 60s come along and, you know, early earlier we were talking about how a good dividing line uh, is to say amongst liberty types is to say, you know, do you think the 20th century was, was liberal or illiberal? Uh, Bill Clinton, of all people, has a, an interesting dichotomy as well. He says, you know, when it comes to the 1960s, there's basically two kinds of Americans. Uh, Americans who think that the 60s and what came out of it was largely a good thing, and Americans who think the 60s and what came out of it was largely a bad thing. So that's kind of a, a an interesting uh, heuristic for the for the modern <laughs> for the second half of the 20, 20th century. So yeah, I would say uh, probably by the fifties it was baked in the cake, and then you know when when this World War II ended, we took on the unfortunate role of world's policeman, and that manifested in Korea and Vietnam as we discussed, and then even worse when the Soviet Union collapsed in eighty nine. Uh, we took on the role as the world's superpower and, and as opposed to disbanding NATO at that time. Um, and, and without any multipolarity in the world, um, we have gorged ourselves on debt and we've lived beyond our means and we've been unchallenged materially and otherwise, and we've had quite a party. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it feels like it's coming to an end, Peyton. Yeah, I I have to agree with you very much and I think the dichotomies of the 20th century and you know the turning the turning of the tides towards illiberalness and the few little pockets we saw where we could change that tide back um very much highlight not only a difference in the thinking of people within the liberty community but just Americans in general and people in general and then also you know the consequences of not only this thinking but what the thinking created and the beast it created um, in which really our state that we see now is a beast forged in the 20th century but I, I think I think that touches upon the things that I wanted to go over um, so now I wanted to give you the floor as I give all my guests to promote the things that you want my audience to know about. Well, I'm, I'm sorry if the backdrop is not what I thought it was here. I'm, I'm actually procrastinating on doing my goddamn taxes. Um, so I got TurboTax and I usually am a little earlier in the filing than this. So that's sort of my project here. Uh, you know, if you're... If you're a younger person, sort of undergraduate age, I encourage you to check out Mises University. You go to the Mises.org and learn about that. You don't have to come necessarily this year. You can come in a future year. You don't necessarily have to be 
college age, we get some older people. Sometimes we get a, a, an attendee in their 40s or even 50s. But for the most part, it's, you know, people in undergrad or thereabouts. Um, it's really a great week for most people. Um, very much life-changing. Uh, and we have a ton of books and other reading material. Uh, this year, we're trying to set up Mises U viewing all over the country and even a few spots in Europe. So we'll, if you go to Mises.org and subscribe to our daily email, you know, we'll get more information out to you if you're interested in sort of hosting, hanging out with some like-minded people in your area to watch some of those lectures online, um, you know, or even watch them at the end of the day with some beverages and some snacks or something. Um, so we've, we've got that going on for people who are interested in our new graduate program. We're now offering a master's degree in Austrian economics. For the most part, uh, you, you need to have an undergraduate degree uh, to qualify for that. There's been some, some exceptions for people to get a certificate, but to get the degree. Uh, so that's a really fascinating program and dirt cheap, uh, two years program, less than $5,000. It's like 178 bucks a month or something, you know, don't go spend 40, 50, 60, $70,000 getting a master's in econ if you haven't at least taken a look at ours. Um, and we're going to be rolling out to some cities later this year. We're going to be in Florida a couple times. We're going to be up in um, Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to be out in Phoenix, Arizona. So, uh, you know, connect with us. Come say hi to me. You know, make sure you meet me. Get me your email and contact information. And uh, we're just trying to uh, move things in the right direction. And that's, uh, that's the mission. And, all, you know, all of your listeners play a big part in that, I hope. Yeah. And I, I have to echo everything that you said. I, as someone who has been to Mises University now and is hoping to go again this year, um, it is truly a transformative experience. Even as someone who considered myself very well-versed in Austrian economics, libertarianism, all of these ideas that are taught about, I still came out of it two times is as knowledgeable as I was good you know and so if you have the opportunity to go to any Mises event take that opportunity and as well you know if you're not already supporting the Mises Institute reading their stuff listening to their stuff you you are missing out greatly um, but I want to thank you so much for coming on uh, and discussing these things with me yes thank you I enjoyed it yes